We continue our series, God's Story, Our Story, as we journey and make our way through the Bible, surveying Genesis through Revelation. We continue our series by looking at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 17. You'll see here that Moses is writing an account of creation. And it might cause you to wonder what was wrong with the first account of creation that we read in Genesis chapter 1. Some have falsely concluded that there are two contradictory creation accounts. The Genesis 1 account just doesn't seem to match up with the Genesis 2 account. But as we dive deep into the Word of God and into our study this morning, you will quickly see that Moses is simply taking a different perspective of creation. While Genesis chapter 1 was a macro view of creation, the whole story of creation from day one through day seven. Genesis chapter two is zooming in on day six in particular. Why would Moses do that? Well, we've established that day six was the crown jewel of creation. It was the creation of humanity, created in the image of God. So Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wisely dives deeper into day six in Genesis chapter 2 to flesh out all of the details that were missing in the macro view of uh, an understanding of Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, a macro view of creation. Genesis chapter 2, zooming into day 6 to pick apart some of the details of what day 6 looked like, the creation of humanity. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the very word of the living God. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The first, Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. We need to remember the original audience of Genesis. The original audience of Genesis were a people that had been in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. The original audience that Moses is writing to are a people that are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The scriptures tell us that they are lost and confused, angry and distressed, and they are even beginning to grumble, believe it or not, and beginning to say foolish things like, I wonder if we should have ever left Egypt. Can you imagine? That they would have rather endured slavery and receive some of the provisions of the Egyptians than to be freed people. Tim Keller often says that you can take the slave out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the slave. That even in their worst moments, they thought slavery was better than being a free people. And so God inspires Moses to say, you need to be reminded who you are and where you're going. You need a story of beginnings to understand, yes, I am the God that has always provided, and I will the God, be the God that will continue to provide for my people. And it's here in Genesis chapter 2, as Moses zooms into the story of creation, that we see this setting of the garden of God, and we see the abundance of the provision of God for the people of God here in the garden of God. So I want to answer briefly this morning, what does God provide humanity in the garden of God. The first thing that we see in Genesis chapter 2, and most importantly, is that God provides relationship. We see a God that provides relationship. Relationship with who? Eve, the woman, has not been created yet, but he supplies an important, more important relationship. The most important relationship that humanity will ever have, a relationship with himself. And this is the relationship that he establishes with himself and with humanity. You might miss it. But here is how God goes to length to establish relationship between him and the first human. You might miss it if you don't understand it. In verse 4, it says at the bottom of verse 4, at the end of verse 4, in that day, in the day that God created humanity, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, how does Moses refer to God? The Lord God. What's the big deal about that? Well, if you remember Genesis chapter 1, don't miss this. The creator is referred to one name and one name only, God. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim, which means the sovereign creator, the sovereign God. In Genesis chapter 1, Moses over and over again says, God, 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 Elohim, 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 to speak of the majesty and the glory and the bigness of God. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 2 and what happens? God has a different name. Moses takes the name from Genesis chapter 1 and he adds an additional name to it. Do you see it there in verse 4? It's no longer just God. It's the Lord God. The Hebrew name Yahweh. 
Now, Moses is not being sloppy. Moses is not being haphazard and saying, I'll use God over here and the Lord God over here. He's being super intentional. Genesis chapter 1, Moses wants us to understand and see the greatness of the sovereign creator. But then in Genesis chapter 2, he wants us to see the imminence of God. He wants us to see the personal, the personal uh, pursuit of God. That this God who created the heavens and the earth, the sovereign God that you read about in Genesis chapter 1, also is the Yahweh God. What does Yahweh mean? Yahweh is the name reserved for God which speaks to his pursuit of humanity. It speaks to the, the pursuit of God entering into covenant relationship with God. When we see the word Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, this is not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but this is a God who condescends to establish relationship with his people the most important relationship. We see a God that is not disconnected from his people. We see a God that does not wind us up and leave us to our own accord. We see a God who is intimately involved in the affairs of men and women. We see a God who condescends. Where, where else do we see this in this passage? Where do we see the reality of the Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God? Well, we see it in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed. The word formed there, underline that word. Formed there in the Hebrew is a word that was used for a potter. A potter constructing his clay by hand. What Moses is saying is God did not haphazardly or randomly form you and design you, but like a potter intricately looks at his clay and looks at his piece of art. That is how you are in the sight and the mind of God. Each one of you formed, knit together, the psalmist says, before the foundation of the womb, in you, it, before the foundation of the world, in your mother's womb. Like a potter forms the clay, so God the creator, Yahweh God, has formed you. One theologian says the fingerprints of God are all over you, so that if you ever wonder, do I matter? Just look at Genesis chapter 2. God formed me as an artist forms a piece of art, as a potter forms the clay. So Yahweh God has formed you. It says also that he forms you out of where? Out of the dust of the ground. Right there in verse 7, we see the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth condescend and do what? He has his hands in the dirt. Moses says that God has his hands in the dust and is forming us. That God condescends. He does not think of himself as separate from the material world, but comes down and actually takes the material world and he uses it to form you and to form me. We see a God with his hands in the dirt to form us. It also says that he does what? In verse 7, he breathes life in his nostrils, the breath of life. The man becomes a living creature. That the God who created the heavens and the earth forms us out of the dust and breathes his breath into us so that there would forever be a connection between his humanity that he has created, that we would be distinct from all other creation, that we have the very breath of God within us. And for those that are in Christ this morning, you know that this is your story, 
That God through Jesus Christ reformed you. That God through Jesus Christ recreated you. And that through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit breathes life into you and brings you from death unto life. The story of the first man is our story in Christ. No culture taught this. No religion taught this. That the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth would actually condescend and become Yahweh. He'd be your God and you would be his people. He provides relationship. The second thing that God provides in the garden is not only relationship, but he provides them life. He not only creates them as living creatures, but he provides a way for them to sustain life. In verse 9, what do we read? That right in the midst of the garden is the tree of life. And this tree of life they are to eat from freely with no cost over and over and over again. This is the tree tree of eternal life. One theologian said, this is life at its highest potency so that when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I come that they might have life and have it to the what? To the full. He's looking back to the garden, looking back to that day when we had life to the full, freely able to eat from the tree that leads to life. But not only God provides life and the ability to sustain life in the garden by the tree of life. But look what he does in verse 15. He partners with humanity and co-labors with humanity in order for human life to continue to flourish, in order for life to be advanced and the promotion of life to be advanced throughout the entire known world. What does it say in Genesis 2 verse 15? It says, The Lord, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to what? Work it and keep it. Those two words, work and keep, are God's way of partnering with us through the creation and the cultural mandate so that the life-giving message of God and the flourishing of the people of God would extend to the entire world so that the whole world would be full of the glory of God, so that the whole world, both the spiritual realm and the physical realm, would reflect the character and the likeness of God. He creates us to work the garden. He creates us to keep the garden. It's interesting, that word keep there, underline that word keep. That was a word that can also be translated guard. Guarding was a job reserved for the priesthood. It was the priest, we'll later read, that was entrusted with guarding the tabernacle and guarding the temple. And what God is saying is the first humanity, the first human being is like a priest guarding the garden of God just as a priest guards the temple and guards the tabernacle he is to keep it and guard it what would they need to guard it and keep it from we'll eventually learn in the next chapter they need to keep it and guard it from the enemy 
That whatever does not look and smell and sound like God, we as human beings who are created in the image and likeness of God are to keep it at bay. That's why the people of God for 2,000 years, his church, have always gone into the darkness to bring about light. We've always gone into the chaos to bring about peace. That's where, where we see injustice, we fight for justice for all those who are victims of injustice. This is the people of God. This is where we get the concept of the priesthood of all believers, that whoever are the children of God, we are like priests in the service of God and the service of the King, working the world according to his image and likeness and guarding it and keeping it for the sake of the kingdom of God. So God calls us here. He calls humanity And he calls us to promote and to protect the garden of God as the creation of God. But he provides life and he partners with us so that this message and mission and ministry of life would extend to the entire known world. Lastly, God not only provides relationship, he not only provides life and partners with us, but lastly, he provides protection from death. Yes, God even went the extra step to not only show us how we would live forever, but he even went the extra step in verse 17. He says, this is how you will live forever, and this is how you will not die. He says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, because if you eat from it, you will die. Here in verse 17, God graciously gives the first human the first prohibition, the first boundary, and says, if you obey me and obey my word, and you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from this tree, you will live forever. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is peculiar because on the surface, it doesn't seem that bad. Wouldn't God want us to know that which is good and that which is evil? But remember how Hebrew structure works. The original text tells us whenever you see two opposites together, good and evil, heavens and earth, east from the west, it is explaining the totality of something. It's comprehensive. So really the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the absolute totality of knowledge, which is only reserved for one, God. So the reason God did not want humanity to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because he knew that the tree represented absolute knowledge. And with absolute knowledge comes absolute power. And in their desire to become like God, which we'll get to in a few weeks, they rather, our first parents, sacrificed life in order to get power. And that would mark humanity forever. Power over life. And so we know the command is here. How would God protect his people in order to live forever? How would God protect his people from death? Simply don't eat from the tree, the tree that represents death. And we learn next chapter what happens. 
the first man, the first gardener, the man who is called to work and guard the garden of God. In Genesis chapter 3, he blows it and he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he's banished from the garden of Eden and banished from the tree of life and we're left wondering, will God be faithful? How will God provide? Will God protect his people from death? And the answer is a resounding yes. You see, we learn centuries later in John chapter 20, the apostle John records the story of the third day. And on the third day, there's a woman by the name of Mary, Mary Magdalene, who goes to do her work to anoint the body of Jesus Christ. And when Mary Magdalene gets to the garden, what does she find? She finds an empty tomb. And while she is weeping, she encounters this. We have the verse. John chapter 20, verse 15. Jesus said to her, Mary Magdalene, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Do not miss this. Sinclair Ferguson says, just as we have connected the first Adam to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, it is undeniable and unmistakable that we should connect the first gardener, Adam, with the second gardener that Mary encounters at the empty tomb, that the first gardener blew it, but the second gardener came 2,000 years ago to eat from the tree of death. The first gardener the first Adam in the Garden of Eden in disobedience ate from the tree of death and it brought death to the entire human race but it would be the second Adam the great gardener of God Jesus Christ who would come and he would eat in obedience from the tree of death and bring life to humanity forever and ever it is why the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is able to proclaim this. In Galatians 3 verse 13, Paul says this in reference to the Old Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Keep that verse up there. Do you see what Paul is doing he is connecting the tree in the garden to the tree on Calvary. He is likening the cross of Jesus Christ to a tree. The tree that brought death in the garden of Eden would be the tree of death that Jesus hangs on that would ironically bring us life to whoever believes in him. Are you beginning to see that there is one story in the Bible? If you have not believed me up until now, are you beginning to see from Genesis to Revelation that God has one message and one story in mind from beginning to end? And this morning we see that a true and better gardener has come who in obedience to his father ate from the tree of death so that we forever could eat from the tree of life. 
And if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, this is the hope for you. That there is a gardener who has come, who the Bible says became a curse, so that you through faith for, would forever become the righteousness of God. For he who knew no sin, knew no sin, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I through faith might become the righteousness of God. This truly is the message of God. And this is what your father does just when you think the father will provide no more. Your father does this. And he provides his son on a cross, on the tree of death, so that you and I can live forever so that you and I can go through this life saying, regardless of what life throws my way, my Father will provide. My pro Father will provide for my family. My Father will provide for my children. My Father will provide for my business. My Father will provide for my community. My Father will provide for this nation. My Father will provide for this church because this is my Father's world. And my life and everything in it belongs to my Father. It is guaranteed from our Father. And your Father this morning says, how much of a guarantee? Look to the cross. There's a camp in Texas called Camp Blessing. The tagline of Camp Blessing is a special camp for special people. It is a camp for special needs children and special need young adults. It's a camp for children with autism and cerebral palsy. Children that are deaf and blind can come and have an experience that blesses them and overwhelms them. And there was one boy at this camp this one summer who had severe autism. And all day, every day, this autistic boy would walk around in circles in a laborious walk over and over again with this look of torment and stress on his face. He would walk around in circles over and over and over again. And they said to the counselor, why does he do this? They said, it's the only thing that makes him feel alive. To walk around with this laborious effort over and over again, the only thing that would make him come alive. Well, at the end of the camp every summer, they end it the same way each year. It's a tradition where they bring all of the campers out side of their cabins. And there's a long road that cuts through the middle of the camp from one end of the camp to the other. And they wheel out and they walk out all of the campers to sit on the edge of the road. And in the distance you can hear music playing. And all of a sudden you hear the music getting closer and closer and closer. And you soon realize that the music is coming from all of the counselors singing songs and singing hymns. And then all of a sudden you see a wooden cross high and lifted up leading the procession of counselors. And this is the greatest part of the tradition. As the counselors and the band and the cross get to every camper, they name the camper by name and they pray over each child. And then they pick the child up and they ask the child to join them in the procession behind the cross. 
Well, the one counselor says, when they got to this boy suffering from severe autism, it was one of the most moving scenes that when the counselors and the cross came to this child, this boy leaped to his feet, beelined it to the front, pushed aside the other campers as so he could stand beneathly under, underneath the cross. And no more did he have that intense look on his face. No more was he walking around in circles to feel alive, but a look of utter joy as he sung and sang his heart out all while being under the foot of the cross. Brothers and sisters, there are some of you here today that are not suffering physically, but your soul is broken. And my only message to you this morning is that you would run to the one place where the Father declares to you this morning, I provide hope in abundance. And if you find yourself running around in circles in this life to find healing and hope, I pray you would look no further that Jesus declares to you this morning and invites you to come and if you ever question if the Father is for you, that you would look to the cross and see a man hanging on that cross that became a cursed so that you might become the righteousness of God, you would be crazy to not run to the cross this morning. I invite you to come. Do you know this man who was hung on the tree of death so that you could once again eat freely from the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, there is a gardener, and he has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found.